one of the challenges to traditional livestock agriculture is is that it is not sustainable moving forward. So when we look at um, land use, land resource, water use, energy consumption, production of greenhouse gases, I, I think those are some very tangible challenges that are facing traditional livestock agriculture. Welcome to Growing Impact, a podcast by the Institutes of Energy and the Environment at Penn State. Growing Impact explores cutting-edge projects of researchers and scientists who are solving some of the world's most challenging energy and environmental issues. Each project has been funded through an innovative seed grant program that's facilitated through IEE. I'm your host, Kevin Slime. On this episode of Growing Impact, I speak with Josephine Wee, an assistant professor of food science at Penn State. Her work focuses on food microbiology and genomics of food-associated fungi. Josephine's recent seed grant project, titled Development of Innovative Materials and Technology for Cellular Agriculture, examines the emerging agricultural production practices for cellular agriculture where meat products are grown in labs instead of on the farm. I'd like to welcome Josephine to Growing Impact. Hi, Kevin. Thank you for having me. Hi, everyone. I'm Josephine Wee. I'm an assistant professor of food science at Penn State. I'm trained as a food scientist um, in the area of mycology and fungal biology. So what I do every day is study mushrooms, yeasts, and mold. And I study them within the context of fermentation, within the context of spoilage and um, toxic production. Could you please describe your project? The goal of this project is to use cellular agriculture to develop new biomaterials for use in food. So what is cellular agriculture? Cellular agriculture is the production of animal source foods or materials from cell culture. Similar to the production of beer, for example, in large vessels, imagine that one day on a farm of the future, we may be producing animal source foods, chicken, pork, beef, using large fermentation vessels. Can we dive into that a little bit? So sure. can, can you talk about the science of it a little bit? So what does that mean? We're going to be building proteins in fermentation vessels. So tell me about that. What does that mean? <laughs> yeah. So so I think this also ties into to the motivation why I got into this in the first place. So I grew up in Asia where, where when we think about animal source proteins, the meats that we consume, chicken, pork, beef, a lot of the whole animal is consumed. But when we look at this production in the United States, we've come to this really large production of animal and meat proteins, where the depending on which source you look at, the percentage of, of meat harvested from an animal varies, but essentially not the whole animal is used. So depending on where you look at, maybe 40 to 60% of the animal is, is harvested as meat, and the rest of it, we don't really have a good source to, to reuse the remaining part of the animal. So in my mind, I think this this form of animal production or this form of meat production could come off as inefficient. So when you look at cellular agriculture, what cellular agriculture is trying to do is to be more efficient in this process by shortening the supply chain. So for example, if I have to purchase meat for that and rely on agricultural production in, let's say, the South, um, can I shorten this production chain? Let's say if I'm living in a, in, a, in a town or in a city, can I get my animal source protein from a large fermentation vessel that I build in the middle of the city where I'm taking... Um, 
animal muscle cells and growing them in a vessel to form um, complex muscle proteins. Essentially, the outcomes of so the food product is the same. It's just produced in a different way. So this is somewhat of a futuristic thing to, to kind of envision, but that's essentially what we're trying to do is to take the, the production out of land into um, cities, for example, and shorten the food supply chain. This fermentation process, so literally, so this is using cells from animals and then using science to then reproduce these cells to then create meats, essentially, or meat products of some sort, correct? Correct. I am a very picky eater. So I think about this and I go, what kind of things do we as a society need to overcome? Have you thought about this? Has this been any part of the conversation? So what kind of things do you have to overcome to be like, hey, this is my eye chicken or you know, whatever it is? Yeah, <laughs> is, yeah. How, how does that work? Have you had any experience with that? Yeah, so um, that's a great question. Um, when we think about these foods, right, they they somehow fall in the category of future foods, right? So you can think about it similar to like insect protein that mm-hmm. no one has ever eaten, right? Um, there are a lot of terms for this. Some people call it like frankenfood. Some people call it like lab-grown meat, right? Um, I think ultimately, in my mind, having an option for an alternative approach to produce food is important, right? Despite of despite of consumer choices, right? I have a really close colleague and a collaborator. Her name is Dr. Helena Hopper that works in the same department. She's a sensory scientist and as well as a food chemist. So what she does is she breaks apart these and then she compares the traditional meat and then these future cuts of meat to ask, okay, from a chemistry level, are they similar? From a volatile, from when you when you cook it and you smell it, does it taste the same? So imagine if they did taste the same, would you still eat it, right? right. Consumers consumers defer on that, that front, right? If we ask them, okay, if they both taste the same, which one would you eat? I think it depends on the consumer, right? If mm-hmm. you if you are starving and you need and you need food to eat, you might say, okay, just give me my source of protein, right? Um, but if you're a consumer that are is of high socioeconomic status and you're like, no, I want to choose my steak and potatoes that I grew up with, then you might you might opt for for the traditional cut of meat. I think for me, if you look into context in America, I, I think our meat, our animal agriculture is deeply rooted in our historical and political mm-hmm. landscape, right? So when you take that into consideration as well as consumer choices you see a huge spectrum where there will be consumers that will be ever ready to try the new foods. And there will be consumers that will always stick to the conventional way of production. So what are some of the goals you hope to accomplish? You listed at least reducing the supply chain. What other elements are you looking for in your project? Kevin, I, I, I like this question because it's, it's a huge one to accomplish, right? So the way I think about it is, is that I'm, I'm a food scientist, but I'm trained in fungal biology. So the way I approach this project is to ask, how can we grow, produce, and use fungal mycelium as food material? Fungal mycelium are these entangled networks of fungi that resemble the roots of a tree. Then when when they're grown in the lab, they really look like mats of like cotton candy or sheets that resemble animal hide. 
So in my mind, one of the goals of this IEE seed grant is to ask how far can we push our boundaries with fungal materials? So remember these animal muscle cells that I told you about? These mm-hmm. cells are also known as adherent cells. What does that mean is that these cells need a platform to grow on. So they can't grow. So if you put them in a vessel, they'll just kind of spin around. They're like free, free floating cells. Mm-hmm. What what the fungal mycelium does is it provides a platform for these animal muscle cells to grow so that then you can grow muscle cells on a platform in a sheet that resembles an animal tissue. So that's one of the goals, the scientific goals, at least, that we're trying to accomplish with this project. How far can we push the boundaries of fungal biomaterials for use in these uh, in cultured meat and animal source um, meat? So this is the second project I have talked to someone about mycelium, which is so crazy. I didn't realize. So that is very cool. I didn't realize that that was going to be part of the platform. And maybe you're already part of this and I don't even realize it. So like LIMC2, right? The Living Materials yes, Group. Yes, Zubeda. I'm part of that group too. Yeah. And Benai Gersoy, do you work with Benai by any chance ever? I do. Uh, or, so so she works mainly with the architecture right. piece. So I'm like the food side. Very cool it. though, right? So looking at mycelium, what a versatile or a potentially versatile material that's able to provide a, a building block of food and a building block of literal architecture. Like exactly. how wild, what are the challenges to traditional livestock agriculture? Food production by means of traditional agriculture accounts for one of the highest contributions to environmental impact and resource usage, right? So I, and I say this very loosely, right? I mean, there are the stats that come with it. Um, so, so I think the important part here is that one of the one of the challenges to traditional livestock agriculture is is that it is not sustainable moving forward. So when we look at um, land use, land resource, water use, energy consumption, production of greenhouse gases, I, I think those are some very tangible challenges that are facing traditional livestock agriculture. I look at some of the individuals who do research on just the management of manure. And it's mm-hmm. like the amount of waste that we need to manage to ensure that it is disposed of properly, not contaminating waterways, um, could be useful in the future in some way. I mean, it's it's an amazing amount of money that we're pouring into and in, in time and energy, literally energy, right? And, and trying to figure out how just to manage the waste. There's so many components of traditional agriculture that are challenging, especially on a scale, right, that is feeding America and or the world. Correct. Yeah. And you bring up a great point about waste as well. You know, one, it is one thing to manage the waste, but at the same time, not but, and at the same time, if we can reduce that waste, that's also another mm-hmm. solution to the problem, right? Like we can manage the waste that we generate, but at the same time, we can actually decrease the waste right. that we generate. You, you referred to earlier, right? We had America grew up with this livestock idea. And so we think about small farms and, and, and local producers, which, you know, maybe they have a small herd of cow or something like that. But we think about when you see the industrial level of production that is necessary to maintain, you know, to feed, we'll just use America, you know, as, as the, as the, as the example, I mean, it's astounding. Yeah, and I think I think um, it's it's a complex issue, like you 
you pointed out, it's it's a complex landscape. And on top of that, if you account for population increases and as well as our aging population that actually need high quality protein, mm-hmm. right, for muscle, for muscle, muscle support. So I think a combination of population increase and the need for high quality protein um, is really pushing us to think of ways that we can increase production of animal source proteins without putting a strain on our existing system. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the big uh, issues with COVID was uh, animal packing houses in the mm-hmm. US. And, and I think it, it's important to also make the distinction between like small farmers, so small farms and large commercial settings. So there are what I'm referring to mostly as large commercial settings sure. or large production. I mean, it came with the industrial revolution, right? Like this increase of large scale production of meat. What solutions does cellular agriculture bring to the table? One I brought up earlier where mm-hmm. in my mind, cellular agriculture can can shorten the supply chain. So what I mean by that is instead of relying on meat source from, let's say, Texas or out in California, perhaps you could imagine a farm that's in the middle of a city. Right. So imagine New York City can can support its own um, folks living in the city by setting up these vessels in the middle of the city. Mm -hmm. So one solution it brings is to shorten the supply chain. Um, The other one is to provide an alternative, right, to to traditional animal production. So when we think of um, traditional livestock uh, production, you, you asked the question about challenges earlier, is uh, the use of antibiotics in uh, to treat animals. Mm -hmm. And that has also been that has also been met by by a lot of pushback from consumers wanting clean label, wanting um, wanting to know where their food comes from. So imagine if you can control all of this um, without you could grow these cells in large, large um, vessels without the need to add antibiotics to grow the cells. So that's just sort of an idea, right? The science is far from this, but. That's the other solution that Celeg brings is potentially we can really um, tailor what we put into these vessels. Um, And as well as um, I also brought up the limited resources so we can make these proteins with less use of water, land, potentially less use of land, water and and, uh, carbon footprint. Who is most likely to benefit directly from cellular agriculture? I think this is a difficult question um, to answer, but if we if we we take the time to consider stakeholder input, I think we would only know this answer once we do a cost benefit analysis, mm-hmm. right, or a socioeconomic analysis. But directly, if I can if I can think of two sectors, if you will, that would directly benefit from cellular agriculture, it would be the new industry that is there are there are tons of startup companies now that are focused on cell ag. That's their main message, producing food sustainably through cellular agriculture. So this new industry would definitely benefit by creation of jobs and its investments coming in. And I think consumers, right? Consumers are the next um, segment, if you will, to benefit because now consumers have have a choice. So I think of I think of my my little ones that I am raising, right? If they ask me, mom, where does this chicken nugget come from? I, and I think in the past you would say, okay, this chicken nugget came from a chicken, right? An animal. But in the future, the chicken nugget would come from perhaps a large fermentation vessel, right? A, a large vessel. So I think consumers, or at least this generation that 
that is um, conscious about sustainability, conscious about where their food comes from, um, can benefit from the choice that they're allowed to make now with this option. What was the inspiration to look at Cell Ag as a possible solution? Yeah, so so this um, the inspiration came from a call from um, from a, a writer. Um, her name is Larissa Zimbaroff. She was writing a book on future foods uh, that really um, perked my interest. I, I think I spent that that Christmas season really thinking thinking about you know what can I do as a food scientist that's trained in mycology and fungal biology. So so I'm also really motivated by this question, you know, how can we make our food production more sustainable? How, where do we move forward from here? Right. So, so I think related to the previous question that you asked, uh, this project really asked, how can we grow, produce, and use this fungal mycelium as food materials for cellular agriculture? So the inspiration really comes from how how can I give back, right, to society, right? The science is really cool. But if I'm not doing something that can benefit the consumers, we talked about segments of the population that can benefit from this. I, I think one of the beauties of this is getting feedback, right? Like this call from, from the uh, journalists and the writer, you know, how, how can we help as scientists? So I think the inspiration comes from many areas. I think predominantly the science itself is really fascinating. At the same time, there is this benefit or impact to society. So scientists are looking at this. The government is clearly interested in this. Have you seen it in industry? Are big groups like Tyson, you know, and Tyson Meats, are, are they looking at this? Are they thinking about this? And yeah, are they absolutely. working on it? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great Great question. Um, so when you look at those startup companies that I shared with you um, earlier that are in cellular agriculture, if you look at who their big funders are, there are large meat companies like Tyson okay. and uh, Purdue Foods and many other meat companies that are investing in this. So um, absolutely, like the large um, producers are also keeping their pulse on it. Can you talk about plans uh, for this project? Yeah, sure. We have several initiatives to move forward um, with this project. I'll, I'll give you a couple examples in a little bit, but I think uh, to point out how we're thinking about moving forward, right? So in 2017, um, the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine really identified cellular agriculture as, as an area of high potential. And then fast forward four years later in 2021, in the middle of a global pandemic, the USDA formed a new advisory committee on urban food systems, including including emerging agricultural production practices, really imagining these farms of the future. So we know that our scientific community, the government, right, in our nation is really keeping an eye on this area of cellular agriculture. So to give you some examples on those initiatives that I, I talked about to move this project forward, um, our team was also part of um, a Novozymes microprotein challenge. So that's a, that's a challenge that's put forth by the industry. So really looking at like a large industry, really keeping an eye on cellular agriculture as well. And in addition, we also are in the process of um, seeking funding from um, the National Science Foundation, NSF. They have a call for future manufacturing, um, which is really in line with this project as well as the USDA um, as well. So USDA is really interested in this idea of what does farms of the future look like and this project really fits nicely with that. And part of this conversation that we're having today will also go into a publication, so a review that we're working on 
based, really、um, catalyzed by the seed grant that IEE put forward. Thank you, Josephine, for having a great conversation about your research on growing impact. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you so much for having me.、Um, this has been a really fun podcast, and I hope that everyone enjoys the show. You've been listening to Growing Impact, a podcast by the Institutes of Energy and the Environment at Penn State. I've been your host, Kevin Sliman. To learn more about IEE and to hear previous episodes of Growing Impact, please visit iee.psu.edu. This has been season three, episode three. Thank you for listening.